Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you today. Welcome everybody to the A&M Church. It's a wonderful place to serve and get connected. I love when we have new members, place membership. Always like to remind us, part of what that picture is for us, what we see membership here, is a time where you come and you offer your giftedness to us, and we offer that back to you. I mean, we are a body and we depend on each other. Um, in fact, it's fitting to think about that because we have places where people are actually stepping up with their giftedness even as we speak here in this church. I want to uh, introduce you to some people that you've seen before, but they're stepping into some different roles here in the church. Put that up. Um, a, a lot of you may know, uh, we're going to celebrate um, in a couple of weeks, Kyler Christensen, who has served us so beautifully and so well as the operations, uh, director of operations of this church. He and Sarah and Zoe are moving to Sherman, Texas. Uh, Sarah and Zoe are already there. Actually, Kyler's still here as he's getting ready for the, the job up there and doing some transition things. Now, anybody that knows, Kyler started as a student and then grew, and his role kept expanding and expanding. So it takes multiple people to replace what Kyler's been doing, uh, including some on the screen and some not even on the screen. Uh, but we're, we're re really excited that when he finishes and graduates, he's already started now, but John Hargrove, one of our AFC students, is going to be stepping in as operations minister because he is gifted in ways um, different than Kyler. He is going to learn some things about facilities and things that Kyler obviously knows off the charts. But uh, John has some giftedness in ministry. In fact, if you were here a few weeks ago, I was sick in January. John is the guy that got up with two days notice and preached for us, did a phenomenal job, didn't he not? So we're going to see his giftedness in ministry as well as helping with our facilities and all of that. Uh, as he's finishing in this semester uh, his classes, um, we've got Jonathan Klippel, who's uh, going to be working part-time, helping us out on call, basically, for when John needs help or John isn't here. Uh, Jonathan's the guy behind the scenes that you don't see, but he's doing a thousand things that make it possible for us to gather as a church community. And in part for some of Kyler's things on a Sunday morning, but really uh, even more to help um, amplify the giftedness of Monty. Monty is an incredible, not just youth minister, but our worship minister here. And for a while, we, we've been doing this a little bit, but now we're going full board to say um, Curtis Ross is our part-time assistant, uh, worship ministry assistant. And, and what that means visibly, as you've seen already, is once a month, he's going to be leading us in both services. Twice a month, he leads in first service. But, but Curtis, you've just been killing it, man, uh, behind the scenes on Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, he's making it more and more possible, taking things off of Monty's back on the majority of days that Monty does come and lead. He's able to come in, do his giftedness in youth ministry, and come in and lead here. And so we love it that we have people that are stepping up. Thank you so much, Curtis, Jonathan. And uh, John isn't here today. He's preaching in her, and he's doing that minister side of what he does. So uh, I appreciate you praying for these folks. And, uh, and again, whether it's visible or not visible, every person, it takes every person's giftedness. The Holy Spirit puts you in this body to give and to receive with each other. And we want to learn how to do that. Uh, so thank you for these folks who are stepping up. And we're excited to do this series that we stepped into. We're just asking this question through this little book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. What does it look like to pursue the joy of God in what we call the real world? What do I mean by that? How, how do we actually pursue joy and, and meaningful hope in a world that sometimes is really confusing and sometimes it's really difficult and there are obstacles that we face? What does it look like to find the joy of God in a world like that? And, and we're stepping into this book that, that really is a Holy Spirit-inspired reflection and journal entry almost 
of a person who calls himself the teacher in the book, a, a wise, experienced, wealthy, powerful, influential person, older person who is now wanting to share their experience with the next generation all the way down to today. We started a couple weeks ago looking at that. Last week, we especially looked at the experiment the teacher journals about. We said, I'm going to look at things in this world and see if it gives me some satisfaction, some enduring meaning, some enduring joy here. Or is it just a chasing after the wind? Or is, is it this Hebrew word hebel? Is it mist? And he looked at a bunch of things in this world. He looked at knowledge and human wisdom. He looked at pleasure. I denied myself nothing, he said. I tried all sorts of pleasures. And I tried human achievement and success. And all of them were mist, he said. And so we're turning this week, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's a classic passage. In fact, in the previous century, they turned this into an anti-war song. Maybe some of you have heard that before. But I want to hear the poetry and the song of Scripture as the teacher will journal his reflections on this next wrestling with what's going on in the world. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And would you please stand out of respect for God? Just our way of saying thank you for God speaking and revealing the Lord's self to us. And you see the words on the screen that we, we say together when we're finished as an as a expression of gratitude. This is the word of the Lord, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Time to be born and a time to die. Time to plant and a time to uproot. Time to kill and a time to heal. Time to tear down and a time to build, time to weep, and a time to laugh, time to mourn, and a time to dance, time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, time to search, and a time to give up, time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, time for war, and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father God, may the words of my mouth... And the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you know one of the great struggles of the human race from the very beginning is wrestling with this question, what do you do about time? From the very beginning, you've got everybody from philosophers to poets to movies, TV, every, everything, down to the writers of Scripture wrestling with and actually fascinated with questions about time. Uh, one of the things I love about Ecclesiastes, it's so earthy, it's so real life. I want to kind of lead into his poem and his reflection on this by thinking about kind of the art and some things in history in our own experience. See how completely universal this wrestling and this struggle is in the human race. Even as I'm saying some of these, I want you to think about what is your favorite movie? What's your favorite TV that wrestles with time? Let's think of some movies. My, my favorite one's Interstellar. I love Chris Nolan movies. I love it. Just kind of wrestling. In fact, they, they say that his science was so good in that movie that, that even inspired scientists to do some work on their own. I can't talk about movies and time without the, 
the classic Back to the Future movies, right? They go back in time. They go forward into the future. Of course, Terminator, that whole saga that Schwarzenegger inspired. And like, it seems like every other Star Trek movie is about traveling in time. I don't know what your favorite movie is about time. Think about that. You might talk about that later. TV shows seem to deal with it even more. Did you know Doctor Who, it was put out by BBC, has been on for 46 or 45 or 46 seasons? There were 26 years that it was in the previous century, took a break for a while, kicked back in in 2005, still going today. 45 years of telling these stories of time travel. Similar one, not as long, but the show Quantum Leap. Started in the late 80s and the beginning 90s, and it just came back a couple years ago, and they're continuing the story in the new Quantum Leap show. J.J. Abrams, another one of my favorite writers and producers, um, uh, did this show Lost over a decade ago, and it kind of changed the way they told stories on television. Because they started introducing not just flashback, but he flashed forward, and by the end of the show, he was flashing sideways. You can figure that one out. And of course, Star Trek. <laughs> like, Every other episode, they're traveling in time. In fact, did you know there's so many of them, they actually did a collection that you can stream or get with DVDs, the fan collection of the best time travel episodes in Star Trek. It's everywhere. I don't know what your favorite one is, but do you feel this? Human beings from the beginning of time have been wrestling with time. Sometimes they think a little deeper than this, right? Did you know over 500 years before they wrote the New Testament, this Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, was wrestling with time. One of his famous quotes from the fragments we still have of his writings is this, no person ever steps in the same river twice. It's kind of deep, isn't it? But it's true. Never step in the same river twice. Why? Because when you go out, come back in, it's a different river and you're a different person. Biologically, emotionally, all of that. The world is always changing all around us. And Heraclitus' whole philosophy was wrestling with a world that is always shifting and changing in some way. The last one, though, I want to lead into, I think it's fitting, as we're reading a poem here in Scripture to look at one of the greatest poets in English history. Maybe you've heard him before, studied him a little bit, William Shakespeare. He wrote these things called sonnets in addition to his plays. And he's often celebrating young love or true love and in Sonnet 19, what you find is him writing a love song, a love poem, but he's wrestling against time. And see as if I read part of this, if it doesn't totally jive with what the teacher is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is what he says. Listen to his struggle. Have you ever identified with this? Do whatever thou wilt, swift-footed time. Here the Ecclesiastes reference. Do whatever thou wilt, swift-footed time, to the wide world and all her fading sweets. Hit pause there. That could be written by the teacher, right? Do whatever you want, this fleeting sense of time, to all these wonderful things that we experience in the world that are what? Fading. It's that word hebel in Elizabethan English. Listen, what he's really struggling with here in this moment, fitting for a sonnet. Do whatever you want. To the wide world and all their fading sweets, but I forbid thee one more heinous crime. O carve not with thy hours my love's fair brow. What's he struggling with? The beauty and the wonder of youth. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about you ever have those moments or seasons of your life you just want to pause, stop right there. And you picture him looking at the face of his beloved, and he says, I don't want time to steal that. Leave her alone. 
just like she is. And he wrestles with that, and he comes up with his best solution as a poet to the hebel, mist-like, fleeting nature of life. What's his solution? Do you see it there at the end? End of the poem. Do thy worst, old time, despite thy wrong. My love shall in my verse ever live young. What does a poet do about that struggling, fleeting nature of life? What does a poet do? Well, he captures her youth in this moment in his poetry. In a sense, it kind of worked a little bit. We're still reading it today, right? But I want you to think about those kind of moments, those capture it moments in your life. Does that quite do it? Yeah, she's in the verse, but where is he? And where is she? Do you feel the struggle? It's one of the things I love about the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher here is struggling with the same questions about time. He's wrestling with this whole concept and difficulty and what he calls burden of time as he's pursuing the joy of God in life. A lot of things I love about how God reveals the Lord's nature and purposes and ways to us in Scripture One of the things I love about Scripture, one of the things I love about the Bible, is it doesn't sugarcoat it. It dives right into the real questions and real issues. These are things we've been writing about and singing about and acting about and wrestling with and thinking about for ages. And the Holy Spirit says, teacher, step into this and talk to us about it. And he does. Wrestling with time. And what is the first thing that he says when we come into the opening words of the text is time is another thing that is hebel, right? Time is another thing that is this miss thing we've talked about. And remember, if you weren't here, uh, this Hebrew word for hebel, he says everything is hebel. He talks about several things. Time is one of these things that is missed. But I say it in two ways. It's missed, M-I-S-T, it's like a fog, it's a vapor, and, and you can't hold on to it. But I think especially in this poem, in this text, the teacher is saying time is M-Y-S-T. It's a mystery. I can't figure it out. And there's a couple of themes here that he deals with about the mystery of time. And I want to think about them with you. Uh, The first one is what he says is the fittingness or the appropriateness of the timing in the world of human activity. Fittingness or appropriateness of timing. What does he say in the first verse? There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heavens. In other words, it's not just about doing things in life. It's about getting their timing right. We all know this. Sometimes you can do the right thing at the wrong time and it's out of whack. But if we get the timing right of the things that we do, everything comes together. And his words, it's actually beautiful. What does it say later in verse 11? Right? seen the burden on the human race, but he has made everything beautiful in its time. When we get the right thing at the right time, it literally is a beautiful, powerful, wonderful, meaningful experience. Part of the way that the teacher sees this, we said before, he's not quoting Torah here, he's looking at the world. And he sees this from creation, and he wires this into his poetry here. Now, we could go into each one of these lines. It's poetry. I invite you to go and do that. We don't have time to look at each one. But I want to look at a big picture view of this. When he does uh, these time to die and time to be born and plant and uproot and all that, did you realize the number of them? One of the things, if you look down the list, what you'll notice is there are seven pairs twice. 
Right? There are two sets of seven pairs. And anybody who knows anything about Jewish history and Jewish numerology knows that number seven is pretty significant. Does anybody know what the number seven means in the Jewish mindset? It means completeness. So we're beginning to get a picture. It's poetry. It's doing something to us, not just saying. And he's laying out these seven pairs of opposites, and then he does it again, complete upon complete. And the picture he's painting is that all of human time, the complete picture of human time, is all in the hands of our God. And if we can align our activity with the right timing, then things become beautiful. All of human activity. Another way you can see this is in the opposites themselves. Sometimes I've read this text and, and thought, okay, it's just talking about two things. A time to be born, a time to die. It's just talking about two things. No. There is a way of speaking and writing in Hebrew that uses a pair of opposites. Not just to say we're talking about these two things, but watch this. They'll use one opposite and the other opposite. And the point is everything in between. It's talking about totality and completeness, just like the sevens twice. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, think about it this way. Uh, one of the best examples of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, talks about the glorious, wonderful grace of God. And he gives a picture using opposites. He says, as far as the east is from the west is how far I've separated you from your sins. What is he talking about? He's talking about east and west. No, he's talking about completely separated. You see, it's everything in between. Or we don't get two chapters in the Bible without using this image of opposites, meaning everything in between. And sometimes I've misunderstood this. Genesis chapter 2. God creates the world, puts humanity in the garden, says you can eat anything you want except for the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Have you ever read that and thought, wow, well, they already know what good is, so I guess they ate the tree and they just know what evil is. Good and evil, two things. No. It's a figure of speech that says they know good and they know evil, and otherwise they want to know what? Everything. Because if human beings could know everything, who do they don't need anymore in their minds, as if they ever could? All of a sudden, if we know everything, we don't need God because we can be God ourselves. That's why we said before, the fall of humanity in Genesis 3 is the declaration of independence from God. We don't need you. We're going to try to know everything. And we've tried. It doesn't work. You see this? All of that to say, this picture and this poetry is intended to make us feel this writer is saying God is holding the complete totality of every human action in the palm of God's hands. And there is a fittingness to that, a totality and a completeness to it. Now, the second theme here is the difficult one, but it's true and we all know this. Yeah, there's fitting and appropriate and right, but here's the problem. It is a burden because we can't figure it out. Have you ever struggled with this? Here's the way I heard one teacher say it. I thought it was a beautiful picture. If you imagine what we talked about last week as the struggle of the teacher with the world. He looks at wisdom and knowledge. He looks at pleasure. He looks at accomplishment and success in the world and none of it satisfies. That's his problem in chapter, end of chapter 1, chapter 2. What's his problem in chapter 3? His problem is God. He's wrestling with God. Because he can tell from creation and the rhythm of nature and all of these things that there is a fittingness and a rightness and appropriateness to the timing of things and he can't figure it out. Have you ever been baffled by the timing of God in your life? Well, we could go through all of the pairs, but let's just take the most obvious one, the first one. 
a time to be born and a time to die. Have you ever struggled to understand the timing of death? Here's what the teacher understands. Everything that happens in this world, it's not zapped by God, but it's in the hands of God. And sometimes the timing doesn't make sense, does it? Shortly before we moved here, one of our dearest friends, a guy named Thomas McKenzie, who's a minister, fellow minister in the area, we were friends, we were colleagues, his church wasn't far from the one where I served, and we would partner together at different times, and he taught me so many things. I'm a different minister because of the way I saw him love Jesus and the way I saw him love his church. And Thomas was about to experience a lifelong dream because he had planted this church. He'd worked there for 20 years and he was about to get a sabbatical. He was a big history buff, church history, and he wanted to go to Europe. And he wanted to see some of the sacred places in Europe that some of the great events in Christian history had happened. The last thing he was going to do before he went on this sabbatical was take his teenage daughter to college. Didn't get an hour out of town. Got hit by an 18-wheeler and they both died. Now, Thomas would be the first one to tell this church, everything is in the hands of our God. In fact, the Bible even puts it this way in Hebrews 9. Have you heard about, we all have an appointment? Have you heard this before? Hebrews 9, we all have an appointment. It is appointed to a person once to die, and after that face the judgment. And apparently somewhere, I'm not saying God, God did not kill him or his daughter, but God is sovereign over all things So somehow, that was the time for Thomas to die. And I'm telling you, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's a riddle to me. And I trust God, and I love God, and I believe in God. And yes, Scripture responds to these things. And we'll talk about some responses in a moment. But I just, just for a moment, I want you to know, if you come in this room and you're wrestling, you are welcome here. Because it's hard. And the Bible honors these Ecclesiastes mist-like moments. Sometimes we love God and we trust God and we know he's got it all. At the same time, I don't get it. Do you? Time itself is a burden with which we struggle. And then he comes to, I think, not only one of the most important things he says in this text. I think chapter 3 is, in my opinion, the most important chapter in the book. Other people might read it differently. But we've been searching for three chapters, and you'll keep searching most throughout the book. Every now and then, just very, very rarely, we're looking for something that isn't missed, that isn't Hebel. For the first time, we get something that isn't. And this last little movement where he turns to talk about time, what he speaks about, is the longing for beyond. What is the longing for beyond? Next slide. Oh, sorry, I missed that. Thank you. I love it when my uh, our PowerPoint people teach me things that I missed. I, I do want to talk about, yes, quickly, two things to respond to this struggle about time because I don't want to leave this. First thing the text talks about is this idea of surrender. What do we do to the fact that time we can't figure out it's missed like we surrender? I love this image. Have you thought about this? There's an image that poets have used It's common in recovery literature, even 12-step programs, and in spiritual guides throughout the ages. Have you heard this before? It'd be probably from the guy that we started with. The metaphor is that your life is like a play. Have you heard this before? Right? We usually think about Shakespeare on this. All of life is a stage, and we are merely... Does anybody know what the next word is? You can say it like you talk. We are merely what? We're players. Why is that important? Listen. 
It's so important to know what our role is and what our role is not. Guess what we are in the play or the drama of life? We're acting, by the way, we're not the lead character. That's important. But more importantly than this, in the play and the drama of your life, you're not the director. It's an image that's happened throughout history. You are not the director of your own life. You might say, well, yeah, I know that, but hold on. I don't know if you're anything like me, but here's my problem. I write scripts all the time. I got a script for the way my life's supposed to go now and how it's going to go next and how it's going to go next. I got it all figured out. And if you're really energetic, some of you might do what I do. I don't just write scripts for me. You're laughing, right? Well, who do you write scripts? I write scripts for my friends and my loved ones and my children and my parents and all. I'll write scripts for everybody in my sphere of influence because I got it all figured out. Here's the problem. You're not the director. And time itself will humble us enough to say, hold on, God, you're the director and I am not. I'm an actor. Here's the grace of God. You get to play a role that matters in this world, but you're not the lead character and you're not the director. So we surrender. Mentioned this before, but a great one-line prayer to begin the day and end the day with. I haven't done it for a while, but I'm going to go back as I studied this again. John Eldridge pointed this out. What if you opened every day and ended every day with this? Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. And I just recognize in that moment, you're the director, I'm not. Doesn't mean I like it, doesn't mean I figure it out, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to surrender actively. The second one, second response to this enigma of time is the biblical word of discernment. If I can't figure it out, I'm not just going to sit here and throw my hands up. I'm going to trust that the one who created time in the first place might speak to me and direct me in it. We talked about this last semester, so if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and look at the, the message we looked at in the book of John, John chapter 16. We say Ecclesiastes asks questions that Jesus himself will answer. You know what Jesus said? The God we worship, by the way, it's one, he's one God, but he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God we worship is communal by God's own nature. He's relational by God's own nature. But here's what Jesus said in John 16. You ready for the promise? For all of us who are scratching our heads about time, here's the promise. Jesus said, I, the Son of God, am going to ask the Father God to send the Spirit of God to guide you into all truth. What a great promise. Ecclesiastes doesn't have a period at the end of the book. It's an ellipsis. It is crying out for a greater response. So we get the opportunity to come into uh, the puzzling nature of the times of our lives and say, God, will you direct us? Why? Because your script is better than ours. Have you ever recognized this before? Like, I'm going to trust God to write this thing? Uh, most of you know that I haven't worked just in ministry uh, professionally in my life. I've worked in the business world a lot. I've been a lawyer in, in a couple different places and in the business world. I remember one time when I was working in that capacity, I got my dream job. I was working for a friend of mine. I really respected it. opened his own business. And he invited me to come in in a growing business, in a growing area. And there was a whole area in the business world, in the legal world. He said, I want you to become an expert in this. And it's flourishing. It's blowing up. We're going to grow. Go for it. I thought, man, I got the script written. I know who I'm going to work with. I know who I'm working for. And I know the next place I'm going to get certified and learn and do all this kind of stuff. And within weeks, he ran into some economic things. And he had to lay people off. I was the first. Not long after, was a dear friend of mine. He went and then somebody else later on. I'm being honest with you. Listen, I was mad. I was really mad because I had the script written and I had it figured out. 
But in that time, I surrender. You're the director, and I'm going to ask for your guidance. One thing after another, we bounced around all this stuff. Eight months later, God opened doors I never thought possible in areas I never thought I would work, and it opened up my life to visions I never thought possible. And I remember eight months later, by the way, it's not always that fast, but eight months later, one of my best friends said, aren't you glad that you didn't get that job eight months ago and keep it? I'm like, yeah, man, I couldn't imagine. Right? Time itself will teach us the humility of surrendering to the great director of time and asking for the Lord's discernment to guide us into it. And now let's go to that last movement. What is this last movement of time? Longing for what is bond. Here is the invitation of the teacher. He just hints at it because he doesn't know it all yet. But he's saying, I want to invite us into the longing that is beyond this world and beyond the time that we can see. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, it's not even the whole verse. And I think one of the most important verses in the whole Bible is right here, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Just for a moment, I want to say this too. If you are here today and you do not believe in Jesus, or you don't even believe in God, number one, you are welcome here. If you don't buy into the story, that's all right. You're not the religious thing. I get that. I've run away from that uh, even before I bought into it sometimes, or after I bought into it. Listen. It's okay. You are welcome here. By the way, we're not going to shove answers down your throat. As you notice, the Bible inspires books like this where we scratch our heads and we wrestle a little bit. Come in and wrestle with us. We do believe we have someone that's leading us. and We don't have the answers, but we know the one who does. We thank and we're following. But you are welcome here. We need your questions. We need your gifts too. But I want to invite you to really listen to this place in the Bible because it will take you to the places philosophers and poets and artists will take you to if you have the courage to go there. This is what he says, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. God has put olam, eternity, in the hearts of every human being. God has put, and we're going to do a lot of Hebrew on you, but there are two words at least that are really important. Hebel, that missed, and the opposite. Listen, this is the first place in the book something isn't Hebel. It's the first place in the book something isn't missed. And God puts it in every human heart, a longing for the eternal and what lasts. It can be translated in different ways. But pretty much every, every place this word is used, it's talking about duration of time into the way past and the way future. And we can't quite figure it out. But God has put this longing in every human heart. God planted in you this sense that, hey, as great as everything is in front of me, there seems to be something more. By the way, you can impress your friends if you want to drop a little philosophy language on them. That was my major in undergraduate. So... Go, go tell them we talked about existential anxiety today. You want to impress people? I don't know with those words, but you do know the struggle. Every human being that's ever lived on the planet Earth has had anxiety, worry, and struggle about our existence. We worry about it. We think about it. We think about what's next. I know it's kind of funny to think about this, but I want to do a little thought experiment with you. And want you kind of laugh as we do it a little bit, but it's true. Do you know our pets don't struggle with existential anxiety? Have you ever thought about that? Our pets don't worry about this at all. I was just imagine, you do your own thought experiment. I was just kind of playfully imagining this week a fishbowl with three goldfish in it. Can you imagine anything more hebel than a goldfish? How long do they last, right? Can you imagine these three goldfish swimming around, and, and then one day they're swimming around, and they look, and one of them's floating, as they usually do, at the top of the bowl. 
Now, can you imagine the conversation? Now, don't lock me up. I haven't been, Sean, I haven't been talking to fish lately. But you know what I'm about to say never happens in a fishbowl. Imagine one fish talking to the other fish saying, you know, just yesterday, Fred was swimming all around with us. Now he's floating at the top of the bowl. Here today, gone tomorrow. What's it all for? Fish don't do that. Oh, I know it's silly, but play with me for a minute. Who has dogs here? Does your dog ever get up in the morning and say, doggone it, man, I had Purina dog chow yesterday. You think they do. You think they do. You're dog owners, right? So that's why they got real food and all that kind of... They get up and they eat the same stuff. They eat it yesterday. They eat it today. They eat it tomorrow. I guarantee your dogs are not writing Ecclesiastes 1 poetry saying, round and round it goes. I ate it yesterday. I'm going to eat it again. Why bother? I really don't think dogs are saying, you know what? I chased rabbits yesterday. I chased this car yesterday. What does it profit a dog to chase all the things under the sun? Oh, I know we're being silly, but listen, he himself in verses 18 and 19 say, we're like animals. We all die. But here's the, here's the thing he struggles with. We're not like animals because we care. In a sense, I think there's part of the teacher that wants to say, wouldn't it be better to be like the fish and the dog, and we don't worry about it, and we don't think about it. No, God, in the grace of God, has planted in every human heart the longing for something more, and you won't be satisfied until you find it, where it finds you. You want an extended conversation in this? Go get the book. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, phenomenal reflection. He has a short chapter, one of the best in the book, called Hope. It's our vision statement here. He never mentions Ecclesiastes or the word olam, but he could be writing it word for word. Let me share with you a question he asked. Again, this is true for anybody, but especially if you're just seeking, if, you're, if you have the courage to seek, I invite you to ask this or think about this. He said, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want deeply something that cannot be had in this world. You know it if you have the courage to let yourself, not just distract yourself all the time. If you stop long enough, you know you want something you can't find. You know it. He gives three examples, by the way, very similar to what the teacher did. He said, think about relationships. Think about, of all things, travel, going from place to place, the most glorious, wonderful places you've ever been, the place you want to go. And think about the work and the hobbies that you get to do. He said, this is the interesting thing. Sometimes you can say, well, if you have a bad relationship or you live in a bad place or whatever, then you understand this. No, no. He said, imagine the best possible one. I'm the luckiest man on planet Earth because I get to be married to a woman, woman named Melanie. And I'm in this glorious relationship. Some of you are in incredible relationships. Some of you are getting into them. Here's the thing you will find. They cannot satisfy everything you long for. Can't do it. And if you try to put it on their backs, you will kill them and the relationship too. Just watch it. In fact, what Lewis goes on to say, this is true. If you look at the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world, they will often spend their lives trying all three of these things. In fact, he calls it the, the way of the fool. There's two foolish ways to go with this issue, and there's one way of Jesus. Here's the foolish way that says the problem is with the stuff, so I'm going to keep looking for other stuff. So some people spend their lives going from place to place to place to place to place because it's surely they're going to find it somewhere. As my friend used to say, there is no such thing as a geographical fix. 
Some people, you know this in this world, go from person to person to person to person because the next one will be the right one and the next one will be the right one and the one I'm with is not the right one. The next one and the next one. And some people go from hobby to hobby, from job to job, job to job to job, and it never satisfies them. That is the way of the fool. He said there's a second way that isn't good, but at least it's a little bit better. People try it in history. I call it settling because of the way of common sense. Settling. I'm not going to be satisfied here, so I'm going to stop expecting. I'm going to push away this thing inside of me that says there should be something more. Forget it. There's a whole Greek philosophy. It's called stoicism. Go try it on for size. By the way, if there is no life after this one, that's the best you can do. But he says, what is the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus says, there is no human desire that creator has given if there is not something to satisfy that desire. You ever thought about this? This is huge. There is no desire out there that you have that doesn't have an ability to satisfy it because God's not cruel and God's not arbitrary. So you ready for one of the greatest lines in history outside of the Bible? I'm going to give you two of my favorite today. This is one of them. And we'll finish with another in a second. This, again, if you don't believe in God, I invite you to wrestle with this question. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I'm not talking about floating away in harps and wings. I'm talking about the world in which it exists right now is not finished, God says, and you will not be satisfied until you experience new heavens, new earth with God at the center of all things. If you can't be satisfied by anything in this world, try it. Please don't, but try it, he says. Maybe you were made for a world different than this one. You have the ability, the willingness, the courage to try that out. Or what about scripture on this? And then we'll, we'll wrap up. Acts 17, Paul was talking to a bunch of pagans. Folks that did, didn't have the Old Testament background. And he talks to them about the meaning of time. Ecclesiastes asked questions, the gospel of Jesus answered. Here it is. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Doesn't live in temples built by human hands. From one man he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. Listen to our Ecclesiastes language. He marked out for them their appointed what? Time. And history and the boundaries of their land. Why, God? Why did you do this whole time thing? He doesn't know in Ecclesiastes. Here's the answer. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he, here's a great promise, is not far from every one of us. God in God's grace allows you to wrestle and struggle and long for things that you can't see here so that you would just say, come to me, God says. Because the second you turn in God's direction, he will fully give himself to you. That's why he did it. That's why the longing is there. And I encourage you to lean into that longing. Don't run away from it. Don't try to satisfy it. The only way to end a sermon with an epic passage like this is God raising up an epic person in human history. One of the greatest thinkers, writers in all of Christian history outside of the Bible. It's a guy named Augustine. Augustine of Hippo. It's a place in North Africa. He's a church leader, writer, thinker. He wrote a book, one of my favorite books they'd wrote is a book called The Confessions. Uh, I've often used pieces of it to teach college students because he does what you would think he does, and then more in this book, Confessions. He tells his story, and he confesses very much like the teacher all the things he tried to fill up his life. But he doesn't just confess his sins and his failures. He does that. He'll go back and talk about stealing pears as a kid. He talks about his, there's a whole chapter on his wild college years where he tried everything. 
Then he talks about trying to be a brilliant, smarter than everybody else in the world kind of guy, which he kind of was, but he tried to get satisfaction there, and none of that worked. And God kept reaching out, and God kept reaching out. And he moved from confessing his sins. Here's the great thing about the book. He moves to confessing his faith. I want to end with, again, some of the greatest words that have ever been written in Christianity outside of the Bible. Hear his words to God. It is a prayer. And he's talking about how he wished he had come to God sooner because he tried all the stupid things that were good things, but he tried to make them ultimate things. Hear his words. Late have I loved you, talking to God. Beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. You were within me. And yet I was in the external world, under the sun, so to speak. And I sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. Now listen to this. God's grace. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent and you put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant. And I drew in my breath and now I pant after you. I tasted you. And I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me. I am set on fire to attain the peace that is yours. No human being, no accomplishment, pleasure, or achievement will give that satisfaction to the longing in your soul. Only the one who made you. And I invite us to step into this glorious book of Ecclesiastes. The one who chased after the wind got instead the breath of God and he pants after him now. And Father God, that's our prayer. Augustine is not the only one. We have all plunged after all sorts of things to try to make this world make sense or give us satisfaction and hope. And you gave us these gifts to be enjoyed, but you also gave us to point to the giver of the gift. And that's what we want to do is to come to you fully and surrender and ask for your direction in the times and the seasons of our lives. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If you have your elements, we're going to finish with communion. And I can't think of a better introduction to just two little verses of what Jesus said this meal is all about. John chapter 6. Don't think of this as a moment where we're just kind of checking off the box and we're doing communion because that's what you're supposed to do on Sunday. The meal we are taking is an appetizer to remind us of our heart's true longing. Here's the way Jesus put it. John chapter 6, starting verse 27. Food is a metaphor here too, right? It's a symbol here, but he says, Do not work for food that spoils. Don't spend your life for what's hebel. But work for food that endures to, if it were Hebrew, it would be olam, that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will give you. And then he makes it clear. Here's the metaphor in verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me and trusts in me will never be thirsty. We take this meal to say, Jesus, you are the only one who can satisfy our heart's longing. And we also receive this as an invitation from Jesus to go introduce that longing to other people too. Father God, we ask your blessing on these elements that we take now, the bread and the cup, which are the body and blood of you, Jesus Christ, because you're present with us here in the meal. 
And you're hosting the meal. It's your table. It's your meal. It's your invitation. So I pray that you use this time, Lord Jesus, to remind us again and call us again to surrender completely to you, to taste you and want that more than anything else, and then to be used by you to just give a flavor of the one who satisfies our souls to those who are around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.